I don't know how to describe it other than like like a demon type of sound. But it's silhouetted, hulking, every bit of five and a half feet wide, 13 to 14 foot tall, pitch black. The one thing that ran through my mind when I had this encounter was I don't have a big enough gun. Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevnik. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We have Melvin joining us today and Adam is with us also. So Tom, would you like to start this off? Yeah, absolutely. This is Melvin and uh, Melvin's a fellow Oregonian and more importantly, he has some very interesting encounters, and some of them are fairly recent. So um, I'm going to bring him on. And Melvin, we got kind of a little bit of a rundown. Um, what I'm going to do is I'll just go through these. And then um, the one I'm going to start off with is Scott Mills. Butte, I think Scott Mills and Butte Creek Falls, are those one and the same or two different encounters? They're one and the same. Okay, so let's start off with Scott Mills, if that's okay with you, and leave no details out. What what, what happened? What's going on? This was um, about 30 years ago when I was about 15 or 16, um, about September. I was out deer hunting with my eldest brother, my youngest brother, my nephew, and my brother-in-law. Um, we had pulled, um, off the, one of the roads up there onto one of the landings and this right next to this landing, about 20 yards off down the side is a, uh, a gully that runs up the, the side of a hill. And, um, we we frequently stopped there because we've seen deer in there before. And this time, uh, we dropped over the side like we usually do off the landing. And um, after looking through the gully for a little while, we uh, started tossing a few rocks out into it to see if we could maybe get something to stir down in there. And above the landing where we were at about 200 yards up the hill there's this uh ridge line that still has trees on it um old growths and that type of stuff um we started hearing some snapping sticks up there like something was moving around at first they were uh it sounded kind of small like uh and kind of infrequent. And then after we were there for a little while, they kept, they became more frequent and they became louder, like larger sticks and branches were being broken and stuff. Um, when it first started, I uh, whispered over to my the rest of my party that I heard something up there and they said it, it might've been a, an elk or something up there. Um, and then as it 
became more and more frequent. I, I said, there's definitely something up there. And uh, we'd walked uh, back up onto the landing. And that's when the larger sticks started being broken. From the sound they were making 200 yards up that ridge, it sounded like they were like wrist-sized branches and stuff being snapped. And there'd be one every 30, 40 seconds like that. So we, uh, really? I, yeah. Okay, so that's uh, that's that's significant. It may have, may have been around a minute or maybe a little longer sometimes. But we, I uh, used my binoculars to uh, look up there along the tree line. It was, um, there were some uh, like smaller trees in the front and you really couldn't see through them. And I didn't see anything moving or anything up there. But you, you still he'll hear something moving up there and snapping those sticks. And I just be, started to get really nervous um, because I knew there was something up there. And I had no idea what it was, but I figured it had to be big to be snapping sticks the size it was doing. And I got so nervous that I actually put a round in the chamber on my rifle and I told him there's definitely something that's up there and it's big and about that time um, I picked up a, a it wasn't a strong smell but I picked up like a, a musky scent on the air and I started looking around to see if I could see what was making that scent. And about that time, um, my brother said, let's go. And um, we all got back in the vehicle after I unloaded my rifle and we left. And there's, and that's about it. Well, let me ask you, a um, couple questions. Number one, uh, you you elk hunted before, and we we talked about this. Uh, it's pretty unusual for elk to come towards you, breaking things, especially something the size of these branches. And the musky smell. Did it smell like, uh, you know, because elk have their own, you know, they got their own musky smell. But as we've talked about is an odor that is very foul, and it's not associated with elk. What kind of an odor was this that you smelled? Um, well, I've smelled elk. I've smelled buck deer. And this was definitely not either of those. It was definitely stronger and more pungent. Um, but it was still faint. I could tell it was, it was still ways away from me. But it was just enough I could pick it up that it was a really strong pungent smell. How were you feeling at the time? Um, because um, I, was, I was really nervous. Yeah, I've yet to go I, elk hunting and have him stalk me. 
Yeah. Yeah, I knew there was something big up there, and I didn't think it was an elk or a bear because they're usually quiet when they're walking through the forest and stuff, and this definitely wasn't quiet, snapping those limbs like it was. Okay. And you mentioned you had some other people in your group. Did anybody else hear the snapping or detect the odor or anything like that? Um, we all heard the snapping. Um, if I recall right, my younger brother, he picked up the, the musky smell as well. Um, he was about 13. Um, but I don't think that any of the others, um, picked it up because they were smokers. So. Well, I'm just curious when you got back in the vehicle, did y'all have any discussion as to what you thought it might've been? Uh, not at that time. Um, I don't really know why, um. I talked to my younger brother years later about it. He says he can remember some of it, but not all of it. Um, and I've tried talking to my older brother about it, but he's kind of uh, closed off. He says he don't really remember it or anything like that. Well, I'm just wondering in an apprehension, I guess that if you got it, you felt apprehensive about the situation and got into the vehicle. Uh, a lot of times I know men just don't want to discuss that they might actually be be fearful of what was going on. At least that's been my experience. <laughs> yeah, I think that was kind of part of it. You know, I still just find it interesting, though. Um <clears throat> This is something I bring up with people from time to time. You know, I have yet to go, I said it once, I'll say it again, I've yet to go elk hunting or deer hunting and have the prey come and stalk the predator, <laughs> the one with the <laughs> rifle. Yeah, that's that was really unusual. Well, you know, who knows? They probably knew what you're doing. And maybe they're just licking their lips and hoping you're going to get some food for them. I don't know. Um, well, that that was interesting. And um, and that was, gosh, it's been a while. So I think what, uh, what I'm going to hand the mic to you, but I think the next spot was, um, this was Scott Mills. Um, what about Camp Sherman? Yeah, the that experience happened in 2001. Um, it was the last week of August, first part of September. We um, went over to the Camp Sherman area uh, to do bow hunting for elk and deer. Uh, we spent seven days there in a camp trailer and uh, we had a, our camp trailer in a primitive campground off one of the creeks over there and behind the 
trailer, there was this um, small clearing about um, 50 yards or so wide and about 100 yards long. And there was five of us on that trip. Uh, there was myself, my eldest brother and his wife, my second eldest brother and my youngest brother. And my eldest brother and sister-in-law were sleeping in the back in the bedroom area. And my other three brothers and two brothers and myself were sleeping up in the front area. And I had uh, the bed right next to one of the windows and I had the window, it was a tilt window. I had it opened uh, to get airflow in there and had the blind pulled up some because I was watching out there in that clearing because we'd seen deer and coyotes out there sometimes. It was fairly bright um, enough that I could see what was out there, distinguish what it was. Um, and I ended up falling asleep up on my elbow and it was the experience was really confusing to me because uh, I take medications to help me sleep and I was kind of groggy and also I have a history of waking nightmares since I was a child so it was really confusing for me and hard to process but about about 12 30 one o'clock i woke up still propped up on my elbow and i looked out the window and i seen this pair of brown amber eyes looking in the window at me um how close were they i mean they're right there looking right at the window yeah the its nose was like almost pressed up to where the the window the slanted window was and it was probably a maybe a foot and a half maybe two feet from my face to the to this the thing's face and wow. it had it had brown amber eyes uh i could not see any whites of the eyes the eyes were probably about six inches apart it had like worn black leather a uh, wrinkly kind of around its eyes it had a, a really stout brow and the nose, it was uh, kind of gorilla-like, but not really. And it was kind of a shiny black. And I remember seeing it and then it made like this blowing sound um, sort of like a horse does whenever it uh, comes up from a drink at the trough. And I felt this liquid hit me in the face across my lips on the left side of my face. And a really stout burst of air hit up into my eyes. And I ended up closing my eyes frantically swiping, wiping away the liquid on my face. And whenever I looked back out the window, I could not see anything there. 
Um, I sat up, opened the blinds more. I looked as far as I could to the right and to the left and out into that clearing. And I didn't see anything out there. And at that point, I questioned what I was seeing, if it was really real. And, and it took me a long time in processing it to actually come to the realization that what I saw was real because I just couldn't believe what I was seeing at that point. But there was a lot of differences from my past experiences with my nightmares and what actually occurred that night. Well, the, I guess what comes to mind is we've all had nightmares, but I've yet to have a nightmare where I got to, I mean, you have to wipe the stuff off your face. I mean, that's like gross amongst everything else. Um, yeah. You, you actually felt the wet spittle on your face? Yeah. Um, after I looked out the window, I actually checked my face again and it was dry. So that was another confusing part. And I'm not sure if it was just a light mist or something that hit me in the face. And I was able to get it all off to where it dried in that amount of time. It was kind of warm that year. Yeah. Well, if, I mean, I wasn't there, but I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, if you, if you felt spittle on your face and you had to wipe it off, there's, that's physical. There's something there. And um, Forrest had an experience where it wasn't quite, it was a little more dramatic than that. But <laughs> um, then when we talked yesterday, as a follow-up, kind of in the same, you know, same day, same night, same time frame, your, I think your brother also had an experience in, in the camp trailer. Am I correct? Or Yeah, later the next well, uh, later that day, I talked to my younger brother um, about it and asked him if he'd seen anything or heard anything around that time. And he said no, but that my eldest brother, who was in the back of the trailer, had been asleep with his wife. And they had the main door open and the screen door closed. And had heard something swat the screen door. And it woke him up. And whenever I talked to my elder brother about it, he said it did occur about 2 o'clock that morning. And he uh, got up and he checked, looked around with his flashlight and stuff. He didn't see anything. And so he just uh, closed the door and went back to bed. Okay, so let me recap for a second. So you get you get things spits on your huffs and it exhales, you know, some some something on your face. Sometime later, your brother hears like a slap. Um, I'm just going to jump in real quick. Will, I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question. Have uh, have we ever heard of people having their cabins or their campers slapped before? Yeah, a time or two. <laughs> and 
we've concluded maybe they're doing a you know a spot check or something. What did I understand now? He when you say he closed the door, did he close the actual camper door, or did he did this thing when it uh, swatted the uh, the screen door? Did the screen door pop open? No, the screen door wasn't damaged or anything. After my brother looked around with a flashlight, he closed the main solid door of the camper. Okay. Okay. Yeah, what what Tom's referring to, I actually had a uh, encounter with one, and all I had was it was it was actually shaking my air conditioner, and that's what woke me up. That and the the cats growling and hissing, and um, uh, you know it's it's rather a frightening experience when you realize that there's just a pane of glass, and in your case, uh, was there a screen or anything on that that window? Yeah, there was a, a screen. Yeah, that's rather frightening to realize that that's all you have between you and, you know, something like that. Now, primates do make a, a noise sometimes, and it's kind of like a huff. And uh, I could see where when they do that, that they could uh, actually, you know, spit on you. Um, so, um, and, you know, I don't know of any waking nightmares um Tom or Will, that you actually have uh, physical things happen to you. Right, exactly. Physical, yeah, spit on the face. I mean, that's not only is it tangible, but it, let's just get, let's just be honest. It's kind of gross. Well, here's, here's the thing, too. <laughs> I mean, this when he when he checked himself again, I mean, you probably wouldn't get a lot on you. So if you wipe it off, and you might do it out of reflex and not even think about doing it so when you check a second time it might be gone and then you might question yourself because that's kind of a uh traumatic situation being especially being that close to one of these things yeah and melvin oh melvin this is chuck i I got a question for you okay um your your first encounter your first sighting um sorry about that um what was the atmospheric temperature if or just give me some kind of idea and was there snow on the ground or anything like that on your first with your first sighting or your first encounter uh there was no snow um uh it was uh it'd been raining a little bit but it wasn't soaking wet. Um, it was kind of chilly, probably 50 to 60 degrees. Um, cloudy, I believe. What about, what about the second, uh, encounter? Uh, the second one, it was, um, it was dry. Um, we hadn't had any rain over there. Uh, uh, it was kind of warm, probably um, during the day. It was uh, ninety degrees, and uh, at night, about around the time that I woke up, it was probably sixty-five to seventy degrees. You know, well, you mentioned uh, um, 
that you thought maybe the thing had been drinking in the creek or maybe some of that spittle might had come from it was drinking or something like that out of the out of the nearby creek yeah uh right on the other side of the clearing uh it drops down about five yards into a creek and after thinking about it for a while and feeling that it was it was cold when it hit me in the face and I thought maybe it had been drinking down there in that creek because I know that creek is really really cold it's some of the coldest water I've ever seen as soon as you put your hand in it even at 100 degree weather your hand almost instantly hurts from the cold so I was he, it might have been drinking in the in that creek down there because I was trying to figure out why it, it felt cold when it hit me. But I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, interesting. Okay. Um, well, that's yeah, very interesting. And, and here's the thing. For those who don't know, um, that part of Oregon, there's a lot of uh, underground aquifers where the water springs up. You know, it, it actually goes down, you know, very deep into the lava. It doesn't get any sunshine, and then it pops up out of these springs. And those springs are just 36, 40 degrees. They're very, very chilly. Who knows? Who knows? Um, yeah, they're they're all over. There's probably. 75, 80 springs just in that little valley there. Adam, I wanted to say that... Um, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I wanted to say that um, when it made that huffing or blowing out sound, to me, it, it sounded like something trying to get rid of a bad odor in its nose or something. And it was... It was just a really a deep a deep sound like from something big. Adam, we haven't heard from you yet. What are your uh, what are your thoughts? Oh, my my thought was kind of back to the first incident where the sticks were breaking uh, in the distance, and then there seemed to be an escalation, and the sticks breaking, but the creatures didn't. Uh, you know, they, they, they didn't show themselves, but they, they knew they were making themselves, I, I'm assuming they knew they were making themselves heard. And I wanted to bounce that off forest and see if uh, there's any similar behavior in uh, primates that you're aware of where maybe they stay hidden, but they make a lot of noise. Well, I don't know about the hidden part, but uh, chimpanzees, I mean, usually when they're hidden, they just don't make any noise, but, uh, uh, chimpanzees will, um, and, and gorillas to some extent, not as much, but chimpanzees are the more aggressive of, uh, of, uh, primates, it seems. Mm -hmm. And they will break sticks, beat sticks on, uh, trees and, um, uh, run around in the forest, making a lot of noise. And it's usually when, um, what I've seen that when I've seen that happen, it's usually when two 
two groups come into um, the same area. They don't necessarily want to get into a conflict, but uh, by making a lot of noise and stuff, it will usually get one group or the other just to decide to move off. uh, You know, and I think that's probably may have been what these guys were trying to achieve too. You know, we'll make enough noise that uh, we'll make them feel uncomfortable and uh, they'll just get the heck out of the area. And that's what they accomplished evidently. That was kind of what it, I mean, that's certainly what they accomplished. I just, I just wondered if there was an analog with, uh, you know, other, yeah, that's, that's and it thing. makes perfect sense with chimps. Yeah, that's the only thing I've seen with chimps that they do. And I, I and this is something we discussed before that uh, I think that of all the behaviors that I've seen that chimps um, seem to correspond, chimp behavior seems to correspond a lot more to Bigfoot than any other primates. There's some gorilla gorilla mm-hmm. activity that's an uh, that's comparable to uh, Bigfoot, but not near as much as what you see with uh, chimpanzees. Fascinating and scary, you know. Yes. <laughs> and don't forget gross. Man, <laughs> uh, we got gross. You got oh that goodness. one covered. Um, so, Melvin, you had, I think you had another situation where you were at Bear Springs, and I think that's another one of those dispersed camping areas. Um, and it's it's the one that I find really fascinating. We hear a lot from, from guests that are witnesses. You had an over sense, uh, a real overwhelming sense of dread just comes out of nowhere. Um, what can you tell us about that experience? Um, yeah, there's a, a primitive campsite down a small road off one of the main roads over there. And uh, my again, my brothers and I went down there and... Excuse me. <clears throat> we got out to stretch our legs. And, um, as soon as I got out, fully got out of the, the vehicle, I just felt this, the hair on the back of my neck stand up and like someone had just walked over my grave. And then I just started getting this feeling that I just, I just needed to get out of there. There was something there that definitely did not want me there and I just needed to leave. Um, so I looked around nervously. Um, apparently my brothers didn't feel it because they were um, off a little ways, just kind of wandering around. But the feeling just kept getting stronger and stronger for me to where I, I just had to get back in the vehicle and um, it was just a feeling that I just needed to get out of there. What, what was the you had that feeling like? before? Oh, go ahead, Adam. I just want to, what, what was the location like? Was it, you know, heavy brush nearby or what? I, I'm wondering where these, this thing could be hiding. <laughs> um, it was a uh, ponderous of pine. Uh-huh. Um, out further, it was like second growth fir trees. 
uh, in around there was um, um, some alders, uh, manzanita brush, um, some very other wow. brushes. Uh, some of the grass was about three feet tall in places. It was you really couldn't see once you got outside the campsite. Well, I should say, if you're standing in the campsite, you really can't see more than two or three feet out into the brush on the sides. Wow. But Adam, you took the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly what I was wondering, what, what the terrain, surrounding terrain was like. So um, it's that sort of you get on the eastern side of the Cascades, it's, for those who don't know, it becomes more like uh, Ponderosa's, almost like what you see on, if, if people remember the old show, Bonanza, that sort of thing, as opposed to the thick brush. Um, so, have you had that feeling before or since, that very specific sense of dread, dread and got to get out of here? I've only had it once before. That was when I was Hunting, oh, probably about 25 years ago, I was uh, sitting on a stump, uh, rifle hunting, waiting, kind of watching this um, small clearing for some deer, and I just had this feeling come over me about the same, I, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And I just felt there was something there and I was in danger. And I ended up swinging around and about 20 yards crouched out in the brush behind me was a, a full-grown mountain lion looking at me. Wow. And, uh, okay, now that's a different, yeah, that's a different encounter. Okay. I've often wondered about that. That's got to be a hungry mountain lion if he's projecting those vibes, and the prey is like, "Oh, need to get out of here." <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, I've and it's I guess uh, the thought that comes to my head. I have no idea what it is, but I wonder what biomechanism is embedded inside of us that alerts us to these sorts of like premonitions of danger. It's speculation. I have no idea of it. I think it's just kind of a, a holdover from our primitive self. I yeah. think you're exactly right. I think well, it's listen, a Melvin, that we all have, but we just don't use it very often. Well, I often feel like I use it less than anybody else because I'm I'm the worst of the worst. I've, I've only had that feeling one time and it wasn't that strong so um no and i gotta thank you i really appreciate you coming on the show today and um very interesting very interesting encounter so thank you very much uh yes thank you Melvin. and if anything else yeah we'll have to have you back on if anything else occurs thank you guys appreciated talking with you In Bigfoot History, North Coast, British Columbia, Summer and Fall, 1962. During the summer, Bob Titmus found 1,200 yards of bipedal tracks in deep moss on Aristizabal Island, 
much larger than human. In August, he found flat, 14-inch, five-toed tracks with a 42-inch stride in a creek bed on an island in Devastation Channel. In the fall, he found three sets of tracks, 14, 13, and 12 inches, approximately, on a beach on Swindle Island. The Spokane Indians, 1975. Indians had a Sasquatch, too. Those who think the stories about a huge, hairy mystery giant called a Sasquatch are of a recent origin should talk with the Wenatchee Valley College historian, John Brown. Brown has found evidence that the search for such a legendary creature was underway in the Northwest by the time the earliest white men arrived in the region. While researching material for a book he co-authored with Dr. Robert Ruby, The Spokane Indians, Children of the Sun, he came across a passage that must relate to what is now called a Sasquatch. The reference was in a letter written by the Reverend Elkana Walker from Fort Colville in 1840. With his wife, Mary, Elkana Walker was a missionary to the Spokanes. In a letter to the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, he wrote, I suppose you will beat with me if I trouble you with a little of their, the Spokane Indians, superstition, which has recently come to my knowledge. They believe in the existence of a race of giants, which inhabit a certain mountain off to the west of us. This mountain is covered with perpetual snow. They inhabit its top. They may be classed with Goldsmith's nocturnal class as they cannot see in the daytime. They hunt and do all their work in the night. They are men-stealers. They come to the people's lodges in the night when the people are asleep and put them under their skins and take them to their place of abode without their even waking. When they awake in the morning, they are wholly lost, not knowing in what direction their home is. The account the Indians give of these giants will in some measure correspond with the Bible account of such a race of beings. They say their track is about a foot and a half long. They will carry two or three beams upon their back at once. They frequently come in the night, steal their salmon from the nets, and eat them raw. If the people are away, they always know when they are coming very near by their strong smell, which is most intolerable. It is not uncommon for them to come in the night and give three whistles. Then the stones will begin to hit the houses. The people are troubled with their nocturnal visits. Brown says he has known about many Spokane Indian legends about monsters, but they have been of the Paul Bunyan type that carves out valleys, etc., the ogre referred to in the letter is not really a monster, just a little bigger than man, and he had no idea what mountain to the west is referred to, the one that always is snow-topped. Perhaps it was Mount Rainier. The Spokanes also believed in a race of little people, Brown says. Even if the stories about the little people and the giants aren't true, the Indians believed they were, he says. Many people today believe just as fervently in the existence of a hairy, man-like object that sometimes is glimpsed, but never really seen. Plaster casts of prints supposedly from the feet of such a creature have been exhibited. 
One Sasquatch hunter has what he believes to be a picture of the man-animal. This area's involvement with the legend goes back some 25 or 30 years to the wild man of Lichenwaster, supposedly seen on that mountain by fishermen. Myth or fact, no one knows. But at any rate, John Brown's research indicates that reports of such a Bigfoot are nothing new. September 22, 1975, Wenatchee, Washington. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open now.